what do you think about all this? It's it's I'm I'm frightened by it a little. I don't know. We always see the world from different directions, so I'm curious what you think. Right. Well, um, yeah, I've not been through this before, but you know, in, in years in the Navy and being all over the world and what have you, I I, I look at this stuff and I go, it, it doesn't help if you get your bowels in a twist and and uh, and you're worried all the time. You got to think through things and and uh, figure out, okay, am I going in the right direction or not? Hey, everybody, Pre-Accident Podcast. Todd Conklin, your host here. How are you, my friends? So let's go ahead and dump in a couple extra little conversations because we got time. What, What else we got to do? We're hanging out with each other. And uh, I connected up with an old friend of the pod. You know him and love him, Bill Rigo. Bill and I and Shane worked for years and years and years. I mean, when we were small babies for the Department of Energy running the human performance programs at our respective sites. And Bill was always interesting because we could not be more opposite from one another politically. I mean, I don't know how you – I don't think it's possible. But we definitely agree – around things like resilience and reliability and have thought about it and have kind of grown together over years in this conversation. And so Bill checked in with me. I really am liking this checking in thing. I don't know if you've noticed it as well. I hope you are, but uh, I'm just kind of making sure my people are all okay pretty regularly. And people are doing that to me. I'm getting calls and text from all around the world, just, just checking in, just saying, Hey, how you doing? How you feeling? And Bill did one of those with me and we started talking and I said, you know, Bill, let's, I'd be curious what you're thinking about this. And well, why don't we do a quick pod and just chat about it? So we set it up and did it. And that is what today will hold. I don't have any news or information or even status. I don't know what's going on. The world changes so quickly and the numbers are so dramatically high with this COVID-19 thing that I I just, I worry about things like people working in warehouses or running stores or keeping the power on or running utilities or keeping communication. All, all you guys that are working all the time, man, I'm thinking about you, especially you healthcare guys. Well, everybody, everybody's having to work now. I'm thinking about you a lot because it's getting freakier and freakier and freakier and it's getting closer and closer to sort of where we all live and you're starting to know people and things are happening and it's, it's uncertainty at a level that to a great extent was somewhat unimaginable. I was looking at a risk matrix the other day, operational risk matrix. And I noticed that the top, threat and it was a it was a SWOT analysis so it was a, a threat analysis organizationally the top threat was pandemic that was the the biggest threat on that list and then behind it or below it I guess were all the things we're used to you know operational uh, supply chain fatality I mean there's a lot of really big ones up there but the pandemic threat was so much higher 
and I realize now that it's 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 really a it's a risk that's almost unimaginable until it happens, which is the phrase uh, risk beyond safety basis. But it really makes me think that it's not the risk, it's the control. And it's not the presence of risk, it's the absence of capacity that puts us in a position where uncertainty becomes really difficult for us to manage. And that, my friends, is the world in which we're finding ourselves right now. And it's interesting, you can see where there is capacity, where organizations have the ability to flex and bend and and actually adapt and change. You can really see where there's not capacity. And things like the hierarchy of controls, which we used to sort of look at as a sacred document, you know, the last line of defense is PPE. What we're learning is it's oftentimes the only line of defense. And so it is so fundamentally significant that it's not low on the hierarchy. It is pretty much the control that we count on. And when it's not there, we really see it. This podcast is not depressing or sad. Uh, and it ends with a C story because every Bill Rigo podcast has to end with a C story. But it is thoughtful, and and it's a discussion really around how we think about this notion of capacity and how we think about the notion of risk and how we think of a very David Woodsian term. Thank you for being there, David Woods. You've helped me so much the last couple of weeks. This notion of graceful extensibility. And that's what Bill talks about with us. So without much further ado or fanfare, because this is kind of a bonus pod for sure, um, let's listen to what Bill has to say. I think you'll enjoy it immensely. This, my friends, is the great Bill Rigo and I chatting about the world in which we live now. And and so I've never been kind of a, a flighty fearful kind of guy um but uh, I, I went through, i remember going through a flight deck fire on the nimitz one of two that I've, I've been through and you know people are yelling and screaming i was re- responsible for firefighting for the ship and i i just got very quiet and calm and i went okay what do i need to do next and, and people saw me and they, and they went what are you doing I said, I'm thinking. So, you know, I, I kind of think that that people need to step back, figure out, okay, what? Uh, yeah, I think people are fearful when they they know something's out there, but they don't know what it is, and then they feel that they have no control over it. And so, my view is to take a take a break, step back figure out where am I and then what can I do to make this better? And, you know, so I, that's kind of how I take it. So with your background, with the new Navy background, how much Mm -hmm. has that prepared you for this kind of crisis? Well, I don't know. Um, I I suppose it does. Um, Cause you know, I'm kind of like you, I read the news and I read the, you know, the blogs and, um, and I was, you know, I've been listening uh, very carefully to your podcasts, you know, your, what do you call them, your virus casts. Oh, God. You <laughs> need to get a hobby uh, if that's what you're doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, and, and uh, so I listened to Decker yesterday, and that was amazing. 
Um, I mean, that was incredible insight. So I, I thought he was great. What, uh, what part of that did you like? Um, I just liked the, the discussion of, you know, Holnagel and, um, you know, and, and others that he cited where, you know, there, there's pretty deep academic thinkers that, that have thought about this and, and how you respond to it and, and how you build resilience and capacity in your systems uh, to deal with this. And so, you know, Decker's always fun to listen to. Um, he's still very much the academic, but, um, you know, I, I, I liked his, his story about, you know, walking on campus and there's no students. And, uh, um, and, and this is certainly going to change the way that um, we approach academics. We started looking at distance learning and, and we found, we did some tests and we found that people who took tests um, through distance learning as opposed to instructor-led courses scored the same on the tests. And, and, and so when we looked at it further, we found that it, it wasn't really the same. So we found that people who did distance learning got different questions wrong in instructor-led material, but the outcome was the same. They were qualified. So I think, you know, I, I think one of the good things that's going to come out of this is, you know, how do you do distance learning better? How do you leverage these professors um, to, to be able to touch more students in a better way? And maybe we'll bring the cost of education down. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, I think potentially. It, so I, I would say, Bill, that the world we re-enter when this all settles down is going to be different than the world we left. And so we're going to have lots of change. And I think one of the things is, is <clears throat> I, I think you're, there's going to be some hard questions asked. Like if the whole admin staff is working from home and we're still getting work done, how much do we need the whole admin staff? I mean, that's a dangerous question, but I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Right. And, and you know, I went through this, well, shoot, I, I was the XO at the uh, nuclear prototype up in New York working for naval reactors. And <clears throat> one of our reactors went down and it, it had a, a, a leak and it was going to take months to fix. And, and we put a whole graduating class of students in jeopardy. And we, were, we had a, a couple of thousand students on site at the time. And <clears throat> so Admiral McKee, who'd taken over from Admiral Rickover, said, how come you know, one little glitch can, can throw you in this much, this much of a problem where you're not graduating classes and sending these nukes out to the fleet? And we looked at it and we saw that over the years, as bad things happened, in the nuclear Navy that we would add stuff to the curriculum that we're teaching to the point that the graduating, the people who were going to qualify and then graduate were qualifying later and later and later. And, and so, um, we had no capacity left if there was a glitch and, and we were every class, we were coming closer and closer to graduating them because they weren't done. So McKee said, Okay, stop. You know, you've got some time now while the reactor's down. Go ahead and look at your curriculum and see what's in there that you really don't need to teach anymore. And we looked at it and we were able to cut out, you know, a good, I don't know, 30 or 40% of it. So, 
you know, the I, I think the lesson is is over time, um, you know, the 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 stuff increases, these requirements increase to fill the available time until you've got no more capacity left to to be resilient. And, and I I really think that that we're going to come to you know that people are going to go, why are we doing this? Um, and and so it especially comes true with regulations. So you look at you know they they've released companies from all these FDA regulations and what have you, and they're coming up with some things that appear to be working. But the only way they could do it was to basically get relief from the FDA against liability once they were figuring this stuff out. So I I think. <clears throat> You know that that's going to be a lesson to be learned. I think you're right. I, I think we're going to come out of this different. I think people are going to start rethinking. You know, why do we lay these burdens on ourselves, and you know, how, how do we get going from here? It's a really good so, comment because those rules rules are the first to go in crisis, and and you're really watching it happen. It's kind of remarkable. So then you ask this question: Well, how valuable are the rules anyway? Right. And, and you and I have been talking about this for years. You know, they're, they're used to punish people in hindsight, retrospectively. I guess that's value. <laughs> what do you think about all the capacity question in healthcare? Because I'm always interested in what you think about healthcare. <clears throat> so I, my brother, my baby brother, is an ER doc in southern Michigan. And I spent an hour on the phone with him this morning just to kind of see what's going on. And And... I mean, he's living the dream. Um, okay, not. Um, but he, you know, he's, uh, so there's some good things and bad things coming out of this. The, the bad thing is, is he's running out of PPE. So they ran out of gowns this week. He's going around with one mask that he wears all day, and he doesn't change it between patients. And, and, but if you wore it and he can't wear it a hundred percent of the time, because if he did, he couldn't reuse it. So, um, but they've got ventilators, they've got, you know, and, and, you know, so they've got an adequate supply at this point. Um, but they haven't seen the market increase in cases like, uh, Detroit has. So Detroit's hospitals are slammed right now. They're at capacity. Um, but one of the things, the good things that's happening right now is people aren't showing up to the ER because they figured out, because the, you know, they're hearing all this stuff coming out over the news that, um, you know, that's where people go to die. <laughs> so, so these people that are using the ER as their doctor when they've got a cold or, you know, what have you, um, they're not coming. So the, the patient load at his ERs is 25% to 50% of what it was before the COVID thing. Um, but it, but he had some really interesting things to say. Um, you know, like they're, the EMS uh, is triaging in the field. So they'll get a call from, you know, for an ambulance and they'll show up and they'll look at this, this person and they'll go, no, you're not going to the ER. You're not getting a free ride. Um, you're not getting free drugs, you know, because there, there have been lots of people that, believe it or not, are, are abusing the ER. 
which is what infuriates one of the things that infuriates my brother. But the the other thing that's going on is hospital administrators have pushed efficiency to the point that um, you know when this thing hit, you know they they didn't have any backup, and and when their supply chains failed, you know they couldn't stock their storerooms, and so you know we we talked about Nassim Taleb and the black swan and and his view is that the enemy of resilience is uh, efficiency. So um, in this case, hospital administrators are eating into their margin to become more efficient. And and as my brother says, I can't be more efficient than I am right now. Yeah, and they're pushing me for more. And, And so that ate into their capacity. And so ER docs on the front line of this coronavirus thing are really having to adapt on a daily basis just to keep from killing people. Um, so, <clears throat> and, you know, like one of the things he's doing is he stopped placating his, his patients. So he'd run tests or administer meds, you know, because it, you know, the, the patient, you know, it will make the patient feel better. Um, but now he doesn't have the capacity to do that. So he's saying, screw you, you know, you you're getting this. You don't need that. Um, this is how we're, we're doing it. And, and one of the drivers for that behavior is uh, the system where they don't get paid unless they get so many upticks from patients in their surveys. So, you know, as you know, if you reward something, you're going to get more of it. And if you punish it, you're going to get less of it. So they were rewarded to, to give a lot of CYA testing just to get better scores out of their patients. So, so now they can't, you know, they can't do it. So they're not, um, but, um, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I think it's interesting. And, um, you know, I, I've been, you know, one of the, the things that I'm seeing in all this, I keep going back to, to lab and the black swan, um, you know, those events, as you know, are, what does he say, they're rare, they're unpredictable, and they're extremely consequential. And, uh, and the only thing that, that you can defend it with is, is resilience. And uh, I, I didn't realize it, but, you know, he's written another book called um, Skin in the Game, which I, I think he wrote a couple of years ago. So I've got to go get that and read it. But I keep going, you know, one of the things, the other authors I go back and look at is this guy by the name of Conklin. Hmm. I don't and, know him. Yeah, I, who is that guy? But he talks about, you know, resilience, you know, from Taleb's perspective, but in, the, in terms of, you know, how you prepare, um, being resilient in preparation, how you be resilient while you're doing work, and how you... you build resilience and capacity in terms of recovery. And so like, um, you know, in terms of preparation for this, this event, well, that moment is over. So you, you kind of, you got to live with whatever preparations you made before this. But what I'm seeing today is medical teams, you know, I haven't talked to my brother, um, is they're really adapting in ways that, assure patient safety while also ensuring their own safety. 
So it's, you know, it's PPE, pre-job briefs, you know, all those things. And then looking at, you know, how do you, um, um, how do you not get hurt? And, and then in terms of recovery, we're seeing that right now. Um, and, and so what, who's the guy that, that talks about recovery is the ability to fail gracefully. David Woods. Uh, David, David Woods. Woods. That's right. Um, so um, we're seeing that already with manufacturers coming up with, you know, uh, you know, they're manufacturing ventilators from GE plants and Ford plants and, and Tesla and you know, all these people and, and then people figuring out, um, you know, micro experimenting with treatments, um, which I think is cool. Um, and then, you know, they come up with quicker tests and, you know, get more of them out to people. So I, I think, you know, that's going on. Um, and, and in terms of, um, oh, it, and for people like us, you know, what are we doing uh, to work safely? And we're, you know, we're obviously practicing social distancing. We're washing our hands way more than we used to. Um, we're doing distance learning and virtual meetings and, you know, all, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I think it's, you know, we're not shaking hands anymore. We're doing church online. Um, and, you know, just like the medical teams and talking to my brother or, are figuring out, okay, what are better ways to, to treat patients? So, so I think, um, you know, that those are all things that we're doing. And it will be interesting to see, you know, how quickly we come out of it, what we do at the end of it, and what we do differently, because there's, there's a fair number of lessons to be learned uh, from this. Well, so let me, I, pull the I, let me pull the string on that. What should we be mm -hmm. learning? What, what are you interested in what's the Rigoian sense of reality that's what i call your brain bill oh, what, are, what, what are you thinking about what should we be learning out of this so i i think number one offshoring your manufacturing and pharma, pharmaceutical industry to countries that are you know have antithetical values to to american values probably ought to be rethought and you know, I, I, as you know, I, I'm not into blaming people because it's I find that kind of pointless. But as we go forward, uh, when you know we get, uh, you know, China has, has told us, well, you know, we we really think that you guys started it, and we really think that when we get done with our crisis, maybe we'll give you some more medicine. You know, I, I think that's just something that we need to rethink. Um, the, well, let, let me let me pull the string on that a minute because yeah. it's. I would be sad if I didn't. That's the tension between yeah. economics and capacity, right? I mean, because it's just a lot cheaper to offshore all that stuff, and absolutely, and the value to the shareholder, a word they use a lot in the business, um, is yeah. higher. So now you've got that pull between capacity and economics, which is it's it's super expensive to have capacity until you don't have capacity. And then if you don't have capacity, it's super expensive. Yeah, that's right. So I, I think there's some, um, we've got to strike some balance between strategic necessity and economics. 
Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that's important. And you've got to recognize, yeah, things will be more expensive. Um, but I, I think the American people are more willing to accept that today. I mean, they've been told that for years and years, but haven't really believed it until now. Now that they can't get masks and they can't get hand sanitizer and they can't, you know, they, I don't know why they can't get toilet paper. Yeah, so toilet so, paper's got a pretty big domestic uh, supply. But we're wiped uh, out, yeah. and I use the yeah. word wiped out on purpose. Oh, so, um, but but I also think that we need to reevaluate our regulatory posture. Um, I don't think you can regulate harm away. I, I don't think you can regulate risk away. I think you've got to strike some balance between, you know, um, harm and common sense. Um, so I think having... Uh, I think we're going to have an, a lot of success that um, out of this that we hadn't really thought about, and and regulators, you know, hate this. Um, but I, I think we're going to need to look at, at how we're regulating what we're doing, and then I, I think um, I, I see. I think it's exciting to be not only taking a look at distance learning. Um, but actually having to do it, um, and in some cases, um, do it without a whole lot of pre-planning. You know, people are just doing it because they have to. So um, I've got a daughter-in-law who is a teacher down in the Greenville school system, and and she's the on the administrative tab, uh, or the administrative side now, working on pedagogy, and so. It'll be interesting to see how her job changes in terms of distance learning. But I, but I, I really think that um, we're going to learn a lot about distance learning that we didn't, we wouldn't have had we not had this. Um, and then, you know, and in talking to my, my brother uh, about learning, he says, you know, that these administrators really need to listen to the ER docs a little bit more. <laughs> and, and so I talked to him about, you know, learning teams and, you know, the object of learning team is when management is, you know, confused about how to go forward with a problem, even though they really think they know what they need to do, you form a learning team and you let the people who do the work figure out what they need to do. And, and my brother said, yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> But, so what uh, advice would you give the world? Uh, you need to spend some time thinking about this, not about how you got here, because that's important. But I think what, what you're going to do differently tomorrow and how you're going to learn from this. Um, I would also encourage people to be nicer. I'm, I'm really seeing some tense people out there. Um, who could be a little bit more cordial to others. Yes. So, and wash your hands. Wash your hands. That's kind of what I think. Um, and, and I I guess to, to leave your podcasters with something else to think about, um, when I was in the Navy, um, I'm a brand new EAL, engineering officer of the watch on the USS Nimitz. I just qualified 
I'm down there watching flight operations, and, and we were, the Nimitz was off the coast of Iran for the hostage rescue at the time, and we're operating in blue water ops, which meant that when you launch planes, they had to come back to your ship, because there was no other landing fields within a thousand miles that they could land. So I, I watched this sortie of 17 aircraft get catapulted off the deck, and just after that, the forward reactor scrammed. And and we were in a bastardized electric plant lineup because we had a casualty in one of the generators. And shortly after that, the after reactor uh, shut down. And so <clears throat> ship coasted to a stop. All the diesels came up. The lights came back on. And, and we're going, well, what the hell just happened? And so we, we had a double reactor shutdown, which is not analyzed by naval reactors. And so at the time, the procedure to start up the reactors took several hours. And we had about an hour to go before planes started falling out of the sky with lack of fuel. And <clears throat> so the chief engineer came down to main control to help me. And the reactor officer went down to the forward plant because he figured he could get that started up the quickest. And within about 30 minutes, they, they got the reactor started up again, and we were bringing steam back in the engine room. And a few minutes after that, we got the ship going again and started recovering aircraft. Well, the point is, it was a that was kind of a black swan event. We, it had never been thought out before. It had never happened before. And we weren't trained on any of it. But, but we, our training in nuclear power was so thorough that we knew we could figure it out, and we did. And so we had the intellectual capacity and we had the good engineering systems to back it up uh, to be able to recover from that casualty that could have resulted in the loss of 17 aircraft and their crews. Um, and, and so we, you can't plan for things like that, but in nuclear power, we knew we had the capacity in spades to be able to deal with pretty much anything that affected the engineering plant. And, and I'm not sure the country, in terms of this response to the coronavirus or any other major you know, pandemic, really has the either the intellectual capacity or the systems in place uh, to be able to defend it effectively, you know, which is why we're having so many deaths right now and the exponential rise in, in the coronavirus itself. So, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but I, I think there's more that we can be doing and learning. Thank you, Mr. Rigo. I, I don't know if that was depressing or encouraging, but I don't know anything anymore. I don't know what is depressing and encouraging. I know this, diet yourself on the news. Take time to take care of yourself and know that we're all in this together. Learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. You heard Bill say it. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. <laughs>